Okay, so I'm going to read from Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited, and if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place and then you will be honoured in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now I'd like to invite Rowan to come up and speak. Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. Why don't I lead us in prayer and we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to reflect on your word together. We pray, please, Father, that you might grant us ears to hear what you have to say, minds to understand it, and hearts to live it out so that we might be people who live in the light of your truth. And we pray it because we want to bring glory to Jesus' name by being like him in the world. Amen. Have you ever been to a memorable meal, a memorable meal, one that was memorable for all the wrong reasons? Uh, I went through a phase, which fortunately my friends are glad that I'm now over, It was a phase where on my birthday, instead of holding a party where they had to come and shower me with gifts, I would put on a dinner party for them. I'd invite them over to my house, a big meal, and say, I want to honour you and celebrate my birthday and really give thanks to God for the fact that you're in my life. And I thought, that's a pretty nice sort of gesture, isn't it? Unfortunately, my culinary skills don't match the good intentions of my heart, and my good friends had to endure some interesting and memorable meals for all the wrong reasons. There was one that stands out in my mind very clearly. I can remember the room we were seated in. I can remember where people were seated and who was there. And I can remember the moment when I served up this particular part of the meal because I had um, planned part of this meal would be a pasta course where there'd be a variety of sort of home-cooked pasta sauces that you could select from and add to your pasta and one of which I thought, I got them out of recipe books, you know, and one was a pasta sauce whose main 
feature ingredient was blue cheese. You know what blue cheese is? It's the cheese that has deliberately grown mould all the way through it. It's very intense and, so I say, refined flavour. Well, there was something wrong with this recipe. I think I probably had approximately 10 times the amount of blue cheese that's probably the recipe required. This was so intense, this sauce, that I could only serve it at a temperature that was sort of superhuman because otherwise it instantly congealed into a solid mass. This was super intense and yes, 20 years later, I still see my friends and I say, you remember that time we came over to your place and you said, yes, I remember that meal. <laughs> it is memorable for all the wrong reasons. I don't know if you've got experiences like that. Have you ever been to a meal that's memorable because one of the guests just behaved badly? <laughs> Clearly, one of our number has. <laughs> the, I don't know if you picked it up, but in the bit from the New Testament that we just read from Luke's account of Jesus' ministry, that was a memorable meal. I, I imagine, in part, that's why Luke has ever been able to record it, because he's spoken to people who were there, or who knew about this event, and it was memorable. The reason it was memorable is because Jesus, as a guest, was completely rude. What he said there, which we just read, was incredibly rude. And that's part of the reason the meal was so memorable. Now, what we're going to do today is just look at this particular meal and what happens. And in the course of this meal, what Jesus does is, to follow the cooking metaphor, Jesus <laughs> turns the gas up from a light simmer to full-on overflow boiling in the course of the meal. He just, he just amps it up the whole time. And you get to the end and he's like... Incredible, what he says, and how offensive it is. So that's what we're looking at today. Now, why are we looking at this particular section, uh, this particular account of what Jesus did? Well, it's because that what we've been doing on and off during this year at EU Public Meetings is we're exploring Luke's Gospel, Luke's account of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And the particular section that we're in for the next couple of weeks, just in the first set of, set of three weeks uh, of this semester, is we're in a bit that's called the travel narrative. That's what scholars call it. It sort of starts in this section of Luke's Gospel, kicks off in chapter 9, verse 51, where what you read there is that Jesus, having just announced to his followers that when I get to Jerusalem, I am going to be rejected by the leaders of the people, I'm going to be killed, and then God is going to raise me back to life again, which is a pretty incredible thing to you know, say. He said this twice, and then he sets his face, Luke tells us, for Jerusalem, and he says, I'm headed to Jerusalem, despite knowing what's going to happen. And then from 9.51 all the way through to when he finally gets to Jerusalem, which is narrated for us in chapter 19, end of chapter 19, this section of Luke's account is called the travel narrative because Jesus is walking to Jerusalem. The interesting thing is that Luke gives very little, uh, very few geographical markers about this journey. He doesn't actually tell you where he went to this town, then that town, and this. Not until you get right close to Jerusalem do you get some of those geographical markers. Because the thing that Luke is interested in is not Jesus' route. What, Je what Luke is interested in is what Jesus taught on the way. On the way to his own certain death and what he claimed would be his vindication by God, his resurrection, on the way he's talking about the kingdom of God when God rules and what it's like to be part of God's kingdom 
That's his focus, Jesus' focus in his teaching as he walks towards Jerusalem. And so what I've decided to do over these couple of weeks is we're just focusing in on a few passages that highlight some key themes in Jesus' teaching. Okay? And so one of the things we're going to look at today is one of the things that Jesus says is absolutely essential if you want to be part of the kingdom of God. Jesus' focus at this dinner party is one of the crucial elements of being a disciple of Jesus. That's why we're looking at this particular chapter. Okay? So let's, I hope you've got your Bible there. Luke chapter 14, or maybe you can look on with the person next to you, call it up on your phone, something like that. Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 24, the title I've given today's reflection is Humiliating Jesus. Humiliating Jesus. And I've divided the, um, the story into four sections, which I think it falls naturally into. Uh, the first heading, first section, verses 1 to 6, is awkward. It's just, it starts, this dinner party starts with an awkward moment. Let me read it out to you. Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if any of you as a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? They had nothing to say. Now this particular situation is a bit awkward. Jesus is on the way to a Pharisee's house. Pharisees were the religious elite, the ones who were known within society as being truly devoted to God, truly dedicated. They took holiness keeping themselves pure, keeping themselves ritually clean, very seriously, much more seriously than the run-of-the-mill Jew. So they were... That's mill, run-of-the-mill Jew. <laughs> run-of-the-mill Jew, which didn't make much sense to me as I said it. These guys were seriously into holiness, purity, keeping themselves ritually clean. This man who appears, and we're not, not quite sure how he... Where did he come from? I don't know, was... Was Jesus about to enter the house? Or he just sort of just got to the house? But he's, he's going to this dinner party and this man appears before him who's got this terrible physical disease. Some sort of abnormal swelling. People think it might be what used to be known as dropsy, some sort of situation which fluid retention, very painful, uh, tragic. This guy's there. Now, this is a problem for the Pharisee because the Pharisees want to keep themselves ritually pure, which means don't associate with anyone who's got an illness. So this man presents a problem for them. And Jesus says, well, what should I do on a Sabbath day? It's a holy day. You're not meant to do any work. But do you think I should rescue this guy? Do you think I should save this guy? Should I give him freedom, release from this bondage that he's in? And they say nothing. So Jesus heals him, sends him away. They still have nothing to say. It's an awkward moment for them, right? You get the tension there, the awkwardness of it. The interesting thing is, this is not the first time this has happened in Luke's Gospel. Twice already, Luke has narrated almost identical situations. So back in chapter 6, verses 6 to 11, Jesus is in a synagogue on the Sabbath day, the holy day. And this time there's a man there with a a withered, crippled hand. And Jesus heals him. The reaction of the Pharisees was fury. 
fury and they start to plot how they can do away with Jesus. And then it happens again in chapter 13, just before this one. Chapter 13, Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. There's a woman there who we hear is crippled, has been crippled, unable to stand up for 18 years. And Jesus heals her, brings her release and freedom, a symbol of the freedom that comes from being part of the kingdom of God. The reaction of the religious elite that time was indignation that Jesus would do this on the Sabbath. Not rejoicing. They're annoyed, furious that Jesus would dare to bring such freedom and release for someone on a Sabbath day. And yet here it is happening yet again, this time not in the synagogue, but at a Pharisee's house. Why would Luke record pretty much the same thing three times? This um, passage has been a little bit, for me, this section has been, as I've wrestled with it over the last week, a little bit like trying to catch a rabbit. We went through a phase where uh, we had a pet rabbit for my kids. His name was Hoppy. <laughs> the kids chose the name. Hoppy and I had a hate-hate relationship. <laughs> he hated me, and despite him being one of God's good creatures, I pretty much hated him. There were times when Hoppy would escape because my two-year-old at the time, I would hear this katung, which was the two-year-old who could barely, you know, could walk up to the hutch, open up and go, Ka-tung! As it opened up the open up the lid and the, out would hop, hoppy. <laughs> and then I would spend sometimes the next four or five days in all seriousness trying to catch this rabbit. And the thing about trying to catch a rabbit is you can get close. You can get very close. Once I was it was midnight. I'm out there, we're going on holidays the next day. There's there's hoppy, there's me, it's raining, and we're on. Like it's you're laughing, it was serious. <laughs> and you can get very close to a rabbit. You can get... I, he is there... Who turned out eventually to be a sheep. But anyway, he, he, <laughs> he was there between my hands, close. I can tell you the rabbit is not over there, it's not over there, it's, not over, it's in here. And just... I couldn't quite grab it. This, this passage is like that. I, I really struggled to grab this passage. What ties this passage together? This dinner party. It starts with this awkward moment with a guy who Jesus heals but they say nothing. But then a whole lot of other stuff happens in the course of the dinner party. They're not disconnected. I think the reason Jesus, sorry, the reason Luke has included this story at the beginning of the dinner party is because what happens with this man is key to understanding what happens in the rest of the dinner party. But how are they connected? That has been hard for me. I think I've got close, but I, I don't know if I've nailed, I don't know if I've caught the rabbit. You see, whether you, you see what you can do here, okay? This is my question. How is this awkward healing connected to the rest? What, what happens next? Well, let's move on. Second heading. Confronting. Confronting. Verses 7 to 11. Jesus goes into the dinner party and all the guests start to take their seats. Notice what Luke records, verse 7. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. So what does Jesus observe? Jesus observes, they've come in, all these religious people, they've come into this dinner party and they're all angling, elbowing each other out, probably in some sort of nice, refined way, to get the best seats of honour. Because in the 
first century dinner party, there were clearly some seats of honour. And they were pushing to get them. That's where they were headed. Jesus observed this. I want you to imagine you were one of the guests. You had been one of these religious people and you had been angling in whatever clever way you could work out to get to those top spots. And then Jesus tells this story. You tell me how you would react. Verse 8. Jesus says, When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honoured in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. How would you feel if you'd been one of the people angling for one of those top spots and Jesus said, look, let me tell you something. You'd feel a little bit confronted, wouldn't you? And you might also say, well, Jesus, um, thank you for that fantastic social strategy, actually, though. Now that I think about it, that's really wise. That's a, I mean, that, how brilliant is that? Like, if I shoot for the lowest place, it's a win-win. Because if I shoot for the lowest place and actually that was the place intended for me, at least I'm not embarrassed by being asked to move down. But if, of course, the host walks in and says, no, come up to a better place, I win. I go up in the eyes of everybody. That's a brilliant piece of social engineering. (laughs) Jesus, thank you for that. Is that what's going on? Is Jesus just giving some advice? No, no, no. See, what Jesus has done is, metaphorically, he's picked up the carving knife from the table, from the feast they're about to enjoy. And he said, let's uh, have a look at your heart, shall we? And he sliced open their chest and he pulled apart the chest cavity and he said, yeah, look at your heart. See how you behave? And then he's going to say, and this is the prognosis if this is the condition of your heart. This is where you're going to end up. He is analysing and then diagnosing and announcing what happens on the condition of their heart. And what what does he see as they angle for the top spots? He says, you guys lack humility. You lack humility. I think, I said, Jesus is talking about discipleship, talking about being part of the kingdom of God. The big theme of this section is humility. We need humility if we're going to be followers of Jesus. Now, I think that's what I'm putting that out there as what I think this is about, but you're going to have to see if you're convinced as we go through, right? It's about humility. Now, here's Jesus confronting them with this truth. I think the reason it's about humility is because Jesus himself says it. (laughs) Verse 11. He concludes his little bit of what appears to be social advice with this line. He says, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What you notice is, if you are a person who is always angling for the top spots, what that says is, you put yourself first rather than others. Right? You're going, it's like it's Darwinian. It's survival of the social fittest. You know, I have to elevate myself 
that will help secure my position and that, frankly, means I probably need to tread on you a little bit. That's how I get myself secure. That's how I elevate myself. It is the opposite of what the Bible calls humility. Humility in the Bible is when you come up to someone and say, I regard you as more worthy of my attention and time than myself. I'm not just saying to you because you're awesome. Humility says, I say to every person, I regard you as more worthy of my time and energy and attention than myself. That is humble-mindedness, regarding as the other person as more worthy than you. That's humility. That's what they lack. That's Jesus' analysis of them. And tragically, it's not just about where they were sitting in the social structure. I think the tragedy of these religious people was they had turned social achievement, right? I'm better than you. Social achievement, they turned that into spiritual arrogance. If I'm better than you and I'm at the top of the religious pile, I must be right with God. They turned social achievement into spiritual arrogance. How do I see this? Well, it's very interesting. A, bit, a few chapters on, as Jesus walks towards Jerusalem, he tells another story. He tells a parable about a Pharisee, a religious person, and a tax collector. You probably know it well. It starts like a joke, but it's not a joke. The Pharisee and a tax collector went up to the temple to pray. Right? But what... It sounds like a joke, but actually what Jesus says is, and the Pharisee is there, and he looks around, and knows where does he look? He looks horizontally. He says, I thank you, God. Well, actually, he looks up and says, I thank you, God, I'm not like other people and not like this tax collector. Right? He's looked horizontally, assessed the marketplace, assessed the field, gone on top of the pile. He says, oh, I thank you, God. He turns his social achievement into spiritual arrogance. But the tax collector comes in and doesn't look horizontally at all. The tax collector, we read, won't even look up to heaven, but he just looks down and says, have mercy, on, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. See, he is, he is focused vertically, not horizontally. And the, 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 the shocking thing about the story that Jesus tells, he says, and it was the tax collector who went home right with God that day, not the Pharisee, not the religious person, not the person who was the top religious person. That person did not go home with God. Why not? Then Jesus explains why not. And the last sentence of that parable is exactly the same as the last sentence of this parable. Exactly, word for word. It says, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So yes, it works at a social level, but Jesus is saying, but when I look at your heart and I see your lack of humility, I know that what that means is that you are not humble before God. If you won't be humble before other people, how are you going to be humble before God? Humility is key because humility says like the tax collector, God, I need your mercy. I can't do it on my own. I don't know um, if you know much about Muhammad Ali. Do you know who Muhammad Ali was? Famous boxer, yes? Not, a, not if yes, you've heard of Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, famous as a boxer, 
but he's also famous for his quotable quotes. In fact, you know some of them. There's many things you don't know in the world, but you know this. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Yeah, you know, that's, and that's so you know how to be a boxer, right? You float like a butterfly. That's what that means, sting like a... Anyway, all right. He, he's got a lot of fantastic quotes. Here's another one that I really love, and I'm sharing this with you just for the pure joy of it. Here it is. He says this. Uh, this is his reflection on being a boxer. He says, It's just a job. Grass grows, birds fly, waves pound the sand, and I beat people up. <laughs> it's just a job. But sometimes Muhammad Ali would come out with a line which showed, I think, real insight, real insight into the human condition. And this is, this is one of them. This is one of them. This is him on humility. He said this. He said, At home, I'm a nice guy. But I've the world to know. Humble people, I've found, don't get very far. Humble people, I've found, don't get very far. I think Muhammad Ali has absolutely nailed the attitude of our world. Did you walk down Eastern Avenue today? Did you notice the big flags that are up advertising the new MBA from our university? Did you notice the main thing it says? The subtitle is reimagining the MBA or something. What's the line above it? Anyone remember? Me first. Yeah, we're really into humility, hey. (laughs) Putting other people ahead of ourselves. No, 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 no. We want to exalt ourselves. That's the world. Jesus says, whoever exalts themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. What's the choice he's given? He said, humility or humiliation. Be humble or be humiliated. Um, did you, do you know what a seesaw is? Do you know what a seesaw is in a playground, a kid's seesaw? They don't have them anymore. They're regarded as not safe. <laughs> they, don't, they don't have them anymore. But like when I was a kid, we had seesaws, right? And you, it's fantastic. You know, it's a, you don't know what it is. It's sort of a, a long board with a pivot point in the middle. It goes up and down like that, right? Okay. The beautiful thing about a seesaw is... You sit down on, like, if you've got a friend sitting down there, you come, you jump on this end, you're down and they go flying up, you go down, right, just... Well, Jesus' point is that what God is going to do is God is going to upend the humility seesaw. If you exalt yourself, you'll be humiliated. If you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. God is going to upend that humility seesaw. Did you watch the opening of the Olympic Games? Did you see Muhammad Ali? There was one particular moment in the opening ceremony where they were walking the Olympic flag into the stadium and they picked luminaries to carry the flag. They were all dressed in white. A former General Secretary of the United Nations. Winners of the Nobel Peace Prize. Fantastic, innovative people in aid and science they pick these luminaries and they're walking in carrying this flag and at one particular point on their way to the flagpole they went to another man dressed in white who was unable to walk with a flag can't do that 
who didn't even really know what was going on because he had to have a person stand next to him, help him stand up, whisper in his ear, here's uh, the Olympic flag, you're in the Olympic stadium, reach out your hand now, touch it, that's the Olympic flag. And then they, after he touched the flag, they walked on and he's still there with sort of hand outstretched and just, okay, you can sit down. Like, it was Muhammad Ali. Humble people don't get very far. How the mighty fall. You exalt yourself. That is just a tiny picture of being brought low. Jesus looks at their hearts and says, Are you humble? I fear not. So I wonder for us, if Jesus sat in on our gatherings, if you call yourself a Christian person, if Jesus sat in on an EU public meeting, well, I'd be pretty scared. But then he hears all my sermons, hey. Though I live in fear. A right fear. A right fear. Um, If Jesus sat in on our public meeting today and then hung round at afternoon tea and he observed went on amongst our Christian community and he said, just pardon me for a moment while I take out the carving knife and expose your heart. What would he observe? What would it be reflecting? Now, there's no top spot, I guess, at an EU afternoon tea, is there? But what other sorts of behaviour would he observe and what would that show about our heart? Are we more interested in trying to be in, somehow on the inner circle, such that that then means that that's what we're focused upon? Are we trying to impress other people? Are we, or are we genuinely humble? If Jesus came to your church and observed your church on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night, what would he observe? And what would it tell him about your heart? Are we humble? Because humility before God will be reflected on how we treat each other. This was the confronting moment. I'm going to race through the next two. So we've had the awkward start. We've had the confronting moment. We then just get what I've called rude. Rude. And this is verses 12 to 14. At this point, I guess, if you were there at the dinner party, Jesus has pretty much insulted everybody, all the guests, I guess the only person he hasn't insulted is the host, since it's the host's house, so it's hard to insult the host about what seat he sits in. So Jesus then turns to the host. Now, to insult a fellow guest is one thing. To insult the host, that's, um, that's turning it up to about a nine, probably, I reckon, on my gas burner. He insults the host. Look at what he says, verse 12. Then Jesus said to the host, When you give a lunch or dinner, do not invite your friends... That's those who are there sitting in the room, right? Who've been invited. Don't invite your friends or your brothers and sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. What's Jesus' point? Jesus' point is, if you are truly humble... That'll be shown in who you welcome. If you're truly humble, it's seen in who you welcome. 
In particular, he says, you've just invited people back who will secure your social standing. Because in the first century culture, the way it works is this. If I want to secure my social standing, I invite my peers to my place knowing that because of the reciprocal nature of hospitality in that culture, if I invite you to my place, you'll invite me to your place. And if you go to someone's house, that means you're in the same group. You're at the same sort of level. So I invite my peers, but if I'm bold, I'll invite somebody who's of a, just a bit, a bit up in the social standing for me. Because if I invite them and they come to my place, they'll then invite me to their place, and that means I'm at their level. Right? So invitations are extended to secure your social position or maybe even elevate it. And Jesus says to the host, who's presumably done exactly that, he says, you've invited the whole wrong crew. If you want to be repaid by God at the resurrection of the righteous, if you actually want to receive God's commendation, you have invited the wrong people. You should have invited the crippled, the lame, the blind. That is, you should have invited the people exactly like that guy in that awkward moment who we sent away. Isn't that the connection between that guy at the beginning? Jesus is now talking about those sort of people. He says, you should have invited those sort of people who had no hope of repaying you and who, yes, would have lowered your, your standing in the eyes of the world. Because immediately going, if you're associating with outcasts, what does that say about you? That's why all the way through Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees and religious elite saying, he eats with sinners. He eats with outcasts. He's lowering himself. He's meant to be a rabbi, isn't he? Let alone the son of God. And he's associating with these lowly ones. And Jesus said, no, if you are truly humble, if you get that, that we are all sinners before God, we are all in need of his mercy, that when we eat together and fellowship together, it is a fellowship of sinners who have become saints and children of God. It is a fellowship of sinners in a similar blessed situation. He says, if you get humility before God, then you will be able to extend that welcome to others because you'll know that we're all in the same boat. This was their problem. They were not understanding that what true humility was and they didn't have humility and therefore they weren't extending that sort of welcome to others. <coughs> so I guess that does raise a question for us, doesn't it? If we are truly humble followers of Jesus, it will show in who we welcome. True humility will show in how we interact with each other at afternoon tea or before the PM starts. True humility will show in the sort of welcome you extend to those on the fringe, to the newcomer, to the one, people who are a bit socially awkward, to the people who just don't quite fit in, who don't quite get it, who aren't cool to hang around with. True humility extends a welcome to all. Because it knows all are in need of God's mercy. We are a fellowship of sinners who have become saints by the grace of God. What do your interactions reveal? When you turn up to small group, do you only want to turn, talk to the leader? Or are you actually there to extend a welcome to the others who've shown up? When you turn up to church, do you just want to hang out with your friends? Or are you trying to extend God's welcome to those who are just sort of still trying to settle in and still trying to make friends. True humility will be reflected in the welcome you extend to others. So, Jesus moves from awkwardness 
too confronting, too rude, and I'm going to finish with where he finishes with I've just called outrageous. He just gets plain outrageous. This is verses 15 to 24. And I think the link here to the rest of it is this. Ask yourself the question, why is this such a big deal for Jesus? Why is humility and extending that welcome, why is this such a big deal for Jesus? I think that becomes clear in this story. What then happens, as you can see there in verse 15, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed are those who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Presumably, Jesus just said, blessed are you if you extend a welcome to others at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, I don't know whether this guy is going, this has been a fully, very difficult meal so far. Here's an opportunity to launch into a new topic. Let's have a nice, safe theological discussion and just get Jesus' views on that because that, frankly, will just let us all off the hook. He says, oh, well, blessed are those who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God, Jesus. There's a good Old Testament theme to... Let's hear you talk about that. And it is a good Old Testament theme, actually. Because one of the ways that the Bible talks about eschatology, yes, it's everywhere in the Bible, not just at Ancon, the way it talks about eschatology (laughs) is as a feast that God is preparing. You can trace this theme back from Exodus chapter 24. There's this funny moment, verses 9 to 11, where Moses and the elders of the people go up Mount Sinai to meet with God and they eat with him there. They feast with God on the mountain. And that becomes a picture of when, when God comes to dwell with his people, it is like a feast. So Isaiah 25 talks about that God will one day prepare a feast of rich food on this mountain for all peoples. So this is a common way of talking about the future, talking about what God has planned in the kingdom of God. This guy, I think, thinks he's setting us off on a helpful track. And Jesus goes, okay, you want to talk about the kingdom of God? You want to talk about feasting? We're at a feast. Let me join the dots for you. And he tells them a story. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come for everything is now ready. Now you've got to know, this guy, we're told, great banquet, many guests, he's a super rich dude. This guy is up there on the social standings. If you've been invited to his house, that is a big plus for you, right? You're going up in the world, baby, because you've got invited to this person's house. Also, the way that feasts work in the first century was if you get invited, right, because it takes a while to prepare, you'll get invited, you'd say, yes, I'm going to come, and then the host would say, great, they would get on about preparing the feast. might take a day or two. Then when it's ready, they say, great, it's now coming. Turn up now. So you've already said yes. You've committed. You're in. But these guys, when they're told, time's come, come now, they come up with the lamest excuses. They have seriously lame excuses. They began to make excuses a lot. First said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. As though in a sort of an agricultural-based economy, you would buy a field sight unseen to secure your livelihood. Really? You're an idiot. Okay? That is the lamest excuse imaginable. Well, except maybe for the next one. I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Oxen need to pull together. You don't just buy random oxen, put them under a yoke and hope they're going to work together as a team. You actually need to try them out to see if they'll work. This guy's got five yoke of oxen. Go and just whack them all together. You'll just check if they work. Really? That's a big expense. That's like just, I'm going to buy a house. I haven't looked at it. Yeah, just buy a house. Really? 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 These are lame excuses. The next one is even more outrageous. I've just got married so I can't come. 
Married people apparently don't go to dinner anymore. They're just having sex all the time. Basically, that's what this person is saying. I can't come, I need to sleep with my wife. Really. These are excuses designed to insult. These are excuses that are deliberately lame, that are saying, yeah, I know we said we come, but you know what? We are shaming you. By us all not coming, we are bringing shame on you. We are sticking it to the man. That's why the host is understandably angry. The host is righteously angry. But he turns his anger into grace. He says, go and find who? The crippled, the lame, the blind, the same people Jesus has been talking about before. Same people represented by that man who'd had that terrible illness with him. Find them and bring them in. Because he says, none of those people who were invited will eat in my banquet. He's saying, if you don't have humility, if you can't, have the humility before God that then shows in extending that welcome to others, you will not participate in the kingdom of God. That is what is at stake. Whether you want to be part of the kingdom of God or not, that's how essential humility is. So as we go from here, as we think about following Jesus, I want to exhort us all, me included, to be humble before God. Humble in the way we deal with one another. Express that in the welcome because without humility, none of us will see the kingdom of God because we follow the humble Lord who died to welcome us. So let me finish with a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love for us in the Lord Jesus who humbled himself to death on a cross so that we might be your children sanctified, purified, justified. We praise you for these things. We pray, Father, that you would work humility in our hearts before you that would express itself in welcome to others that we might be like Jesus in the world. We pray it in his name for his glory and sake. Amen.